Hello, and welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blanca, and this is our co-host. Hey, I'm Aaron. The case we have today is a bit crazy. All right. I found it while researching one of the other cases. I think it may have actually been last week's case. I'm not totally sure. But when it came down to picking this week's case, I just, I saw it in my queue. I, I went for it. And, and that's what we're doing today. All right. I'm excited. Uh, we are going to Lakeland, Florida. Oh, nice. Yes. In July 2015. Now, Lakeland is apparently in the Tampa Bay area. And it has around 112,000 people. So it's kind of a medium-sized city. There are multiple touristy type websites that try to help you have your best time in Lakeland by appearances. So I'm guessing that it has some really nice areas. Yeah, it sounds kind of nice. All right. So our subject today is a woman named Cheyenne Jesse. Now, in 2015, she was 25 and her life had been a bit of a struggle ever since the day she came into this world. All right. Her mother wasn't exactly cut out for parenting, so she neglected and deprived Cheyenne of affection. Worse, she brought dangerous men into little Cheyenne's life and ignored the way they abused her daughter. Before the age of four, Cheyenne had already experienced physical and sexual abuse while in her mother's care, and it left lifelong scars on the little girl. Damn. Yeah. Finally, though, Child Protective Services did get involved in Cheyenne's life, thankfully, because in her case, it was very much a good thing. Yeah, totally. They removed her from her mother's care, and a court awarded her father, Mark Weekly, full custody of Cheyenne. That's good. At that point, she never saw her mother again. Now, obviously, it's hard to lose a parent, but in her case, I get the impression she didn't want to see her mother because of all of the terrible abuse she had suffered. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Definitely. Obviously, her life got better after she went to go live with her father, but it still wasn't perfect because she had spent four years being severely neglected and abused, and that left scars that you can't just get rid of in a couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Cheyenne didn't walk or talk like a normal four-year-old. And when she went into school, she had developmental delays that put her behind her peers. In elementary school, she was a few grades behind the other kids her age, intellectually and emotionally. So she attended a special education class. A former classmate who knew her around that time told reporters that she often behaved strangely in school. And one of her teachers said she was shy and withdrawn. Then, at the age of eight, a psychiatrist diagnosed Cheyenne with bipolar disorder. Now, this is fairly rare, especially at her age, because bipolar disorder used to be only diagnosed mostly in adults. So for a child to be diagnosed as bipolar, especially that long ago, is kind of a notable thing. Yeah, definitely. And we'll see that Cheyenne's not the only person in this story who is going to get such a diagnosis. All right. Yeah, even though it's kind of strange. Okay. For his part, Mark Weekly tried his best to be there for his daughter. He may or may not have been a perfect parent, but it's clear that he cared about Cheyenne. And despite her hardships, she outgrew a lot of her delays. And in fact, her IQ tested in the normal range. And as an adult, 
she was able to hold down several jobs without any issues brought on by her mental illness. Well, that's good. Yes. So by the time she's 25, things are definitely looking up for her in a lot of ways. Except there's one problem. At the age of 19, Cheyenne had given birth to a little girl she named Meredith. Unfortunately, she'd been raising her child alone as the baby's father lived across state lines in Georgia. He chose to stay out of his daughter's life so Cheyenne was on her own with six-year-old Meredith. Becoming a mother brought new problems into Cheyenne's life. She found it difficult to control her daughter and told people that Meredith's behavior was out of control. Cheyenne even sought treatment for Meredith's issues. Like her mother, the little girl received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder despite being just six years old. At one point, she even received inpatient psychiatric treatment for the condition. For context, bipolar disorder is a rare diagnosis in children, and according to Boston Children's Hospital, approximately three children in the United States have bipolar disorder, with just 0.5% having the most severe form, which is bipolar 1. These are more recent statistics, and I bring them up partially to show how rare it is for a child to get that diagnosis and that it's strange that both of them did get diagnosed with bipolar, although it is genetic partially. Yeah, that's definitely very notable that they both got it so young, Mm -hmm. especially, you know? Yeah. I could see if the mom got it young and then the daughter got it like later in life, but for them both to get it like when they're both, you know, underneath 10 years old, that's... Mm -hmm. That's telling. Yes. And I I know I'm kind of familiar with this because I have bipolar disorder, which I think we've talked about in the podcast. And I was diagnosed officially, I think, when I was 15. And even that was weird because I was not an adult yet. And I remember it was a huge deal that they went ahead and I diagnosed me with it. So we are talking about a six-year-old and eight-year-old at this point who both have received this diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's a bit extreme. But to be fair, I mean, Cheyenne had gone through a lot of problems. Maybe her mother had issues too. There is a genetic component to bipolar disorder. It's not impossible that this happened. I just thought it was notable that they both had that diagnosis. Yeah, I definitely think so. So we have this mother and daughter who both have problems with their mental health and they are living together in what has become sort of an unhealthy relationship. Unfortunately, you know, Cheyenne's the mother. So we have her side of the story but Meredith was too small to really communicate her side of what was going on. So we don't know exactly what that mother-daughter relationship was like, but I just wanted to insert here that I don't want this to become an episode where we talk about how Meredith was just misbehaving and causing all of these problems because I think this is sort of a give-and-take situation and I think it's unfair to the little girl because children are just hard to raise. I mean, it's hard to be a parent. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Cheyenne to feel like she had no control and that her daughter was lashing out at her. But at the same time, I don't know from what we will learn that Meredith was really getting the type of parenting that she needed from Cheyenne. So I I don't really think it's fair, essentially, to denigrate a child. Yeah, I... I agree. I mean, it's hard to judge a a little kid, you know? Yeah, she's six and she clearly has some problems. And I don't think that she gets fair treatment in some of the depictions of this case because, I mean, she's a little girl. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're little kids, you know? Mm -hmm. So at this point, Cheyenne's been struggling through life for several years, but she finally has hope on the horizon. In 2015, things are looking up for her in the love department. She'd recently moved in with her boyfriend, Cody Monroe, whose legal name is Matthew Monroe, and they'd planned to get married. 
The only problem was Meredith. As it turns out, Cody might not be cut out to be a father, especially to a little girl who needed special attention. Cody didn't want to deal with the headache of parenting Meredith. In fact, he told Cheyenne he was considering a breakup if things didn't change soon. According to Cheyenne's friends, however, a breakup might have been the best thing for her, though she did not see it that way. Since she started dating Cody, Cheyenne's friends noted that her mood had been rapidly fluctuating between up and down, and she no longer seemed like herself. They blamed Cody for this. Okay. Although, to be fair, it kind of sounds like a manic episode or maybe a mixed episode. I don't know if that's Cody's fault if she has bipolar disorder. Yeah, it's, I guess it's hard to tell, you know, without knowing more about what's going on in their relationship. But, I mean, I can see why a friend might draw that conclusion, though. Yeah, for sure. I also want to say that in a lot of the reports about this, Cody is painted in kind of a negative light, but I don't know that there's ever been any real evidence that he did anything to anyone in this case. I have not seen any proof that he yelled at her or tried to abuse her or tried to abuse the child or harmed the child. It's clear he wasn't happy with having to be a parent, but it's unclear that he was doing anything really harmful in the relationship. Well, that's good. I hope that's true. Yeah, we don't know for sure. Yeah. Cheyenne wanted a future with Cody. So she decided to do everything she could to save her relationship. That meant getting her daughter out of the picture by finding her a new home. So she decides to get this new home for Meredith. And after researching whether or not she could give her six-year-old up for adoption, Cheyenne came up with what she thought was the perfect plan. She would give Meredith to her 50-year-old father, Mark Weekly. After all, Mark raised her from the age of four So couldn't he do the same for Meredith? Now, I don't entirely think this is a bad idea, if Mark is on board with it, that is, because he did do a lot to help Cheyenne get healthy after what happened with her mom. I mean, clearly he did a good enough job for her to have finished school, gotten stable, caught up to her peers, gotten a job, all that. I mean, he did something right. Yeah, absolutely. And she obviously was having trouble figuring out how to handle her daughter's behavior. Maybe he could have done a better job with the experience he had from already having done it before. That's logical. I mean, it's possible. We don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also don't have any evidence that he was abused. So that kind of puts him like in a more stable place than she would have been. That's true as well. Yeah. So maybe it's not such a bad idea. So on July 18th, 2015, Cheyenne packed a bag for Meredith and drove the girl over to her grandfather's rented home on Drainfield Road. She took the child inside and handed the bag to her father. A neighbor and friend of Mark's, Vicki Parker, saw the grandfather and granddaughter that day, and they were happily talking about a trip to visit family in Georgia. Mark even told Vicki that he planned to take Meredith to see her paternal grandparents out there, but he needed their address from Cheyenne first. Everything seemed normal at the time, but it was also the last time anyone would see the grandfather and granddaughter alive. At first, friends and family believed Mark and Meredith had gone on that short vacation to Georgia. Not only had Vicky heard about the trip from Mark, Cheyenne and her boyfriend Cody also received text messages from Mark's phone. While the first few texts seemed normal, Mark soon made some startling revelations. In sum, he said he had cancer and didn't have long to live. He wanted to spend his remaining time with Meredith 
in Georgia. That came out of nowhere. Yeah. I find it hard to believe that anyone would go on like a spontaneous vacation with their grandchild and then just text people that they have cancer and are just never coming back. Right. Because that's the sort of thing you mentioned in a text message. (laughs) Yeah. And also, if you had a short period of time, does it make sense to abandon everyone you know? Uh, No, it doesn't. That's crazy. Yes, it is. It's weird. It is. Okay. So that's one thing thing that he supposedly reveals. In other text messages, he just says that he's moving to Georgia and he's keeping Meredith with him and he just told Cheyenne to just start selling off all of his stuff. That also sounds suspicious. Definitely, definitely. I do not know anyone who's just gone on a trip, decided to move there, and just allowed someone to go in there and clean their house out. Yeah, I don't think anybody does that. Well, it turns out, initially, people did sort of believe this story. I think it helps that Vicky had heard that they were going on a short vacation, so maybe people just thought, okay, they're on vacation. Yeah. But they soon became suspicious because, first of all, all of Mark's communication pretty much was going through Cheyenne and stories were not adding up. Obviously we've seen some cracks already developing in the story, but I mean, he's not calling anyone. And most importantly, his cars are both still at his house. Uh Oh, that's the red flag. Yes. So at this point, Vicky, the neighbor who's really involved in his life notices these cars and she's thinking, How is he in Georgia if his cars are here? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, so she thinks maybe he came home early. So she goes to the house. She knocks on the door. No one answers. But she's not going to just give up. She's not exactly nosy because she's not going in the house. But she just keeps an eye out for activity because she wants to find out what's happening with her friend. Finally, she spots Cheyenne over at the house. Now, this is July 22nd. And Cheyenne is removing items from the home. So she goes over there to figure out what's going on. And the SUV that Mark owned was pulled up really close to the house. And Cheyenne's trying to load this big tote onto the SUV. Okay, so she's taking something out of the house. Yes, large plastic bins. And so Vicky asks her, what's going on? Where's Mark? Where's your dad? What's, you know, why are you bringing stuff out of his house? And at that point, Cheyenne tells Vicky the story about him moving to Georgia and asking her to clean out the house. Well, Vicky follows up and asks about the cars. And it doesn't appear that Cheyenne really explained the SUV being there. But she did say that her father had signed his truck over to her before he left. Okay, that, yeah. that sounds a little fishy. For sure. And it's still unclear what car he's supposed to be in if they're at his house. Yeah, for real. Like, that's a huge sticking point for me. Yeah, like, did he take a bus? I mean, Mm -hmm. did he hitchhike? Yeah, like, with the child? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so at this point, friends and family members are suspecting that something might be wrong. So they pressure Cheyenne to call the police to report the pair missing. So we're about two weeks almost after the last time they've been seen. And Cheyenne finally starts to cave in to this pressure. I mean, people are asking her a lot of questions. She doesn't have any good answers. And it's only a matter of time before the police came looking. 
Right, because people are going to eventually call themselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, eventually somebody's going to go looking for them. So on August 1st, Cheyenne called 911 and reported her father and daughter missing, presumably so she could control the narrative. When officers arrived at the home to take the missing person's report, they asked Cheyenne for permission to search the house, which she gave. And this reminds me of another case that we did where the suspect just invited the cops in And then there was murder evidence everywhere. Well, as we will find out right now, that is exactly what happened with Cheyenne. The police go in to the house and they immediately know that Cheyenne's story, that her father and daughter simply disappeared, is complete bullshit. You see, the house smelled like dead bodies. That's a red flag. Yes, a huge red flag. So they walk in, they smell the stench of rotting human bodies and they know immediately that somebody has been murdered here and they have a pretty good idea who it is since they have two (laughs) missing people they're able to do this math it's very simple right yeah exactly they look around next can we see anything that's noticeably weird and they see that there is a couch and a love seat that are like some sort of leather and they're covered with sheets I wonder what could be underneath. Yes, it's totally normal to have sheets all over your couches, right? So the cops walk over there, they remove the sheets, and there are these large brown blood stains all over the sofa and love seat and slash marks in them. <laughs> Okay, so that's a really great cover-up job there. You know, it's like, yeah. hey, we'll throw a couple of sheets over it. No one uh-huh. will ever think to look behind those. Yes, not a good plan. Okay, so at this point, they're like alarmed, right? And they can still smell the decaying smell. So they ask Cheyenne about the smell. And she tells them that she left rotting meat in the sink. And that's where the smell came from. And what about the blood, though? Is that also from the meat? Okay, well, at this point, she's just like, What? I don't know about the blood initially. That's her story. Like, she's not sure what's going on with them. She doesn't know what happened to her father and daughter. This is all shucks. The blood just came out of nowhere. It did. She'd never seen that before. Exactly. So, please keep pressing her because of reasons that I feel like are obvious. And eventually, she confesses to the crime after about a four-hour interrogation. Okay, but the story she told them is absolutely insane. And I have to tell you, it's almost like one of my favorite murder explanations in a way because it's so bad. Really? It's so, it's such a stupid story. Well, because I mean, we've heard some pretty bad ones on this show. It's worse than the dad that tried to say the wife did it and then like killed herself with that big bladed knife after she like drank the Benadryl. (laughs) like that guy the guy who like obviously killed his whole family and then was and then was like the hero at the end yeah (laughs) where he heroically right heroically was cried for them that's all he did was cry like oh no how dare she right yeah yeah that guy he was still not as bad as what this was about to happen all right well i can't wait to hear about this then buckle up people cheyenne says that she and her father began arguing the night of july 18th Because he said she was just like her mother, which she knew was an insult to her parenting. According to Cheyenne, this argument escalated to the point that Mark physically attacked her. And while he was on top of her and punching her, 
a knife fell out of Cheyenne's pocket. Really? Yes. Yes. So it's her knife. And she just had it in her pocket because, you know, coincidences. Well, sure. Yeah. You know, maybe she was going to protect herself from someone else, right? Yeah, sure. She just carries it on her all the time. Yeah. And she didn't necessarily pull the knife. It just appeared from her pocket. Conveniently. Yes. Now, at this point, Mark, who is the aggressor, picks up her knife that she brought to this altercation. And he tries to plunge it towards Cheyenne to murder her. Okay, but Cheyenne is super lucky because seeing her mother under attack, little Meredith darted in front of the knife to save Cheyenne. What? Yes. Wait, hold up. So mm-hmm. the six-year-old is going to like dive in front of it and yes. take the knife? just like slides in okay. there and takes the knife. Right, like just like you would see in an action movie. Yes, you know, where exactly like, like, like that. Diving sideways and... Mm-hmm. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and okay. so the dad accidentally plunges the knife into the little girl. Instead of reacting to accidentally stabbing Meredith, instead, the body's just flipped up onto the sofa. Really? L- yes. Like a like an action movie? Yes, like an unrealistic, supernatural one, because it can't be regular. This is like some vampire level maneuvering that we're talking about. <laughs> where like, she's, imagine the mom is on the floor, the grandfather is on top of the mom, and he's like trying to stab, right? The little girl slides underneath in between them somehow, gets stabbed in her neck area, and then somehow the momentum of this flings her into the air from in between them, in the air, onto the sofa where she lands, explaining the blood stains. Oh, now they have an explanation for the blood stains. Yes, that's why it's important that all of this flipping happens. I see, yeah. Yes, because we have a couch and a love seat where two people were very obviously murdered. Yeah. Right? So (laughs) we have to explain how they landed there. So that's how she got there. So it's some like acrobatic magic Yeah, she just like went poosh onto the sofa. So she's like out. She's like laying there bleeding on the sofa in this version of events. Okay. So at this point, Mark, who loves his granddaughter by all accounts, does not react. He's like, I guess, fine with this. He's just going to go and continue killing Cheyenne. But fortunately for her, Aaron, she activates ultimate fighter mode. Ultimate fighter mode. Yes. And despite being a relatively smallish female, she manages to punch him in the throat as he's going to stab her. Then she grabs the knife from his hand, I guess while he's stunned from being punched in the throat. And she stabs him in the chest. Now, remember, he's on top of her, people. So, she uses her superhuman powers to flip his entire body up onto the love seat, conveniently explaining those bloodstains. No way. Come on. Yes, that's how this... So, that's the next move. She flips him up onto the love seat. But she forgot about something. Because even though Cheyenne does not live there and does, in fact, live in a separate location with her boyfriend, she had stowed a gun underneath the love seat for self-protection. Wait, so she's claiming that she stored... Her gun. Yes, it's her gun. Under her dad's love seat. It has to be at the scene for a reason, right. Aaron. At his house. Which just, she does not live one. in, yes. Yeah, she just kept she just keeps a gun at her dad's house yes. under the love seat. And he was on vacation, supposedly, right? He was going right. there. He was gonna go on vacation that day. Yeah. There's a gun under the love seat, people. Okay, because that's a totally normal thing. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know about you, but I yes. keep a lot of guns at my dad's house. Yes. 
Also, it's not even like <laughs> in the cushions, people. It's underneath the love seat. Yeah, you just like leave it on the floor, you know? Yes, that's yeah. where it's located, allegedly. That's yes. That's total so, bullshit. Mark, despite the fact that this is Cheyenne's gun, which she hid there, he knows that it exists here because, you know, evil villain reasons. So he reaches <laughs> under the love seat, he grabs the gun, and he's lifting it to point it at Cheyenne. But once again, she had the upper hand. And she was able to force the gun around so that it was facing her father. And at this point, his finger slipped on the trigger and he shot himself in the head. That is total bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's the sort of thing that you make up after you've seen, like, too many action movies, you know? Because, like, that's the sort of stunt they pull yes. in an action movie where you, like, you turn uh-huh. the gun around and then, you yeah. know what I mean? But, like, that's, that doesn't... Yes. I don't think that happens in real life. No. Especially I mean, not like this. This is ridiculous. This yeah. is the stupidest <laughs> shit. Like, yes. she's literally fighting them off, like... She's a superhuman person. Yeah, she's it's, over here like Walker, Texas Ranger or yes, some shit, right? it's crazy. <laughs> okay, but we're not even done yet. This is like the beginning of the murder. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So at this point, the gun has gone off and somehow that enabled her, I guess because he's dying, to grab the gun. And for some reason, she just fired off some more shots. And like finished him Sam, off. Like Yosemite Sam. Just. Yes. She just <laughs> stated, and there's a whole description where she gave this statement. She shot off some more shots. <laughs> All right. And then at this point, it was for sure self-defense. Okay. So the cops hear this story. And unsurprisingly, they do not believe this story. <laughs> uh, no, no, no all, way. I don't, I can't believe that. Yes, I know. Um, surprisingly, this explains all of the physical evidence, right? The blood on the couches. Mm. Not so much the slashes, right? <laughs> uh, the Yeah, so this sort of explains some stuff. But here we have a little bit of an issue. First of all, normal people uh, would react at some point to some of this, the grandfather to stabbing a small child, uh, the mom to seeing all of these murders. Like you would call the cops or something. Uh No one's going to just be like, Oh no, my daughter died accidentally. That sucks. Let me just dispose of this body because that's what she's trying to do. Right. Yeah. Like normal people don't just dispose of their loved one's bodies when they're killed in an incident. Yeah, no, that's that's not yeah, at all what happens. Yeah, and then just happens. go no. on with life and pretend they're still alive. Like right. that's not part of it. <laughs> yeah, be like, well, my dad, you know, killed my daughter, and then he, and then he, more or less, killed himself. But you know, let's let's uh-huh. go have tea and and you know. Yes, and I have to point out that all of these idiot moron monsters that kill their families, this is always the shit that they pull. They every single time they're like, oh yes, one of the people I murdered murdered all the rest of them. And then I either heroically murdered them or they also killed themselves. Those are all, every single one of them, every single family annihilator type person on here always tries to blame one of the victims for their bullshit. It's just part of it, apparently. Yeah, it's a terrible part of it. I freaking hate it. Like, I don't like any time that a victim gets blamed. That's what I was trying to allude to earlier about, about the little girl, Meredith, and her behavior stuff. Like, maybe she was having behavioral issues, but I don't really care because you can't murder your child. And I feel like it's unfair to reduce this adorable child who had her life ahead of her, who had people who loved her, who was by all means special reduced to this whole oh well she was bad sometimes even if she was extremely bad 
It doesn't give you the right to murder her. No, totally not. It doesn't. Uh-uh. And it's completely inappropriate. I, I find it very offensive that the that Cheyenne is constantly bringing up how her daughter was so allegedly so behaviorally problematic. And that was like a reason to kill her. Yeah, there's no reason for that. Mm-mm. Nope. No. Even if you need to reach out for help. Like, I definitely feel like parents should get help if their kids have serious problems like this. If she did have a serious problem. But there is absolutely zero excuse for her murdering her. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I got off a little bit. So you might be thinking, what if this self-defense story holds some weight, right? Okay. In case you thought there was a reason to believe Cheyenne, don't worry. We have a lot more reasons to doubt her besides the absurdity of this story. Uh, These reasons come from the medical examiner's office. So Dr. Stephen Nelson examined the bodies of Mark and Meredith and found evidence of a disturbing double murder. I almost said double moita. Double moita. <laughs> because of murder mystery shows. That's how I like to say it. There's Okay, anyway, I'm not going to get on murder mystery shows. But yes, yeah, so there's a double moita. You're wondering, how do you know, Danielle? She says that he accidentally shot himself and accidentally stabbed a little girl. Okay, well, those are not their only wounds. Turns out, Clark had a total of three gunshot wounds. Three? Yes. Now, you might be thinking maybe that's because she just randomly shot off the gun at the end. Maybe. Except for Meredith had a gunshot wound as well to the back of her head execution style. Okay. That's not an accident. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And I believe that's why she said that she fired off the gun instead of saying that she shot it. Because in her dumb story, she never explains how Meredith gets the wound. And I, I'm wondering if maybe she, like, is trying to convince us that she just panicked at the end and was, like, free shooting into the room for no reason and she just shot both of them. Is that her plan? I mean, apparently, but it, yes. it's a terrible it's a terrible story. Mm-hmm. So, in addition to having these gunshot wounds, Mark had around a dozen stab wounds and Meredith had four stab wounds to her neck. Oh, shit. Yes. So there is absolutely no way, people, that Mark could have accidentally stabbed Meredith that many times. And also that Cheyenne stabbed him once and it looked like 12 times. Yeah, exactly. Once and 12 are not the same. Yeah, and the shooting wounds are just ridiculous. Yeah, completely. Okay, plus we have those bloodstains on the couch and the slash marks, people. Yeah. I mean, I feel like she could have planned this story better. I mean, she needs to go to the jail forever. Yeah. But I feel like she had two weeks to, like, make up a story. And the ninja story is insane. Yeah, you should have been able to come up with a better story before that. I feel like it's insulting to everyone because she also villainizes her victim. Yeah, which is not okay. Yes. Okay. I mean, I guess she's already murdering people. I mean, that's she's probably just not a good person. (laughs) Probably not. Okay, so during their investigation, police developed a different theory, which I'm sure is a surprise to everyone, (laughs) that they had a different idea. So according to authorities, they say Cheyenne did drop off her daughter at her father's home on that July 18th day so that he could take her in either for the vacation or forever. It's unclear. However, during the drop off, they think that the dad really did criticize her for being not a great parent. Now, this sort of makes sense. I mean, if you're Mark and you're 50 and you've raised your child and maybe you're just not wanting to raise your granddaughter, but you know that you have to rise to the occasion, I can sort of see being frustrated that she's wanting to have this man in her life and so she's dropping off the child 
And he's saying, you know, this is just like your mother who dropped you off in theory. Not quite the same because Child Protective Services, I believe, was involved with that. But she basically stepped out of Cheyenne's life when she was four. I can see how he would get angry and draw that parallel. I could do that. I don't think it's appropriate necessarily because it appears that she wasn't treating her daughter as badly as she was treated. But I can see why the dad would say that. I could too. Okay, so the police think that this is really what triggered just an intense rage in Cheyenne. That that was just like across the line for her that he would compare her to her mother. Which I also understand because, I mean, if you had a parent that abused you as vilely as she had been abused. I mean, remember, she had walking issues. She could barely talk. She had developmental delays. She had been sexually abused. I can't imagine having done none of those things and then having... You know, someone directly compare me to the person who did those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she got just completely enraged. She goes back to her house. She gets the gun and the knife. That's why she has to explain why they're her weapons because they came from her house. Okay, so she gets this gun and the knife. She goes back to the father's house and she confronts the father and her daughter. Now, because she was angry at Meredith for not being a perfect daughter all the time and for standing in the way of her relationship, she decided to just kill both her father and her daughter. That is not okay. No, it's not. So she stabbed her father 12 times, shot him three times, and then turned on her daughter. She shot little Meredith in the back of the head and stabbed her in the neck four times. To hide the crime, she took her father's cell phone and sent text messages from it. After the murders, Cheyenne left the bodies in the house for a couple of days. She returned on July 20th and 22nd to clean up, but it proved harder than she expected. First of all, the smell was atrocious. I mean, we had two bodies in July in Florida just sitting out on this furniture. Yeah, that's got to be awful. Yeah, so the bodies are are bleeding. There's bodily fluids. There's fleshy bits that had come off apparently, which is just disgusting to think about. And that had gotten onto the floor and, and through the floorboards underneath the house as well. And because we have bodies, we also had flies. So the flies are congregating in the home. There's dead flies everywhere too. It's just a disaster. So she went to Walmart and she bought an air freshener to cover up the smell, which I'm going to just go out there and say, I don't think that works. Yeah, I'm guessing that was not effective. Yeah, 0% chance that that was effective. Yeah. And she also purchased bug bombs from Lowe's to kill the flies. Okay. Yeah, that's apparently a priority. Yeah, clearly. But, of course, she still has the two bodies to deal with. At this point, blood and flesh were stuck to the floor. So she decided to scoop that up with a shovel. Jesus. Which is an image that I did not need in my head. Yeah, for real. Yeah, but she did notably neglect to clean up the crawl space under the home. And that's why that smell, well, not the only reason, but it is a key reason why the smell was so strong when the police arrived. Because essentially it was just roasting under there and just like emanating up into the house. Yikes. Just like letting everyone know 100% sure this is a murder situation. Yeah. As for the bodies, Cheyenne got some large plastic storage bins to use as makeshift coffins. Oh, boy. Yes. Now, her boyfriend, Cody, later told police that he was with her when she was shopping in between the murder and when she got rid of the bodies. 
And when she walked by some plastic storage bins, she actually asked him if he thought a body would fit in there. Oh and my God. also asked him how long it would take maggots to eat a body. Okay, really? Yeah, that's a red flag. But at the same time, I mean, how would Cody know that she'd murdered them? Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand why he wouldn't jump to murder. But at the same time, like, yeah. if you're her, like, what, what are you doing? Red flag. Yeah. Like, red flag. Like, what are you doing? I also have to say, though, I feel like the totes might not be as red flaggy. For some people, because maybe people are just curious, but the maggot part is fucked up. Yeah, like, nobody asked that randomly. Nobody asked that. And also, does it work that way? Like, I don't think that's how that works, y'all. I have no maybe idea. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know about, about this. That. I don't want to know it. Yeah, me neither. Would be my preference. Agreed. So, she takes these plastic storage bins, and she placed Meredith's body in one of them. On top of the body, she tossed in the six-year-old's pink dolphin stuffy, a bracelet, a pink blanket, and clothes. She finished the box by placing bedding over the top before securing the lid. Next, she maneuvered her father's body into the second plastic bin. However, he was too big, so part of the body stuck out of the top, and since she couldn't put on the lid... She piled a bunch of extra blankets on top of it to hide him. Oh, boy. I do not know how she got his body into the bin. I wish that I could, like, not think about that. But he's a full-grown man. How did she do that? Yeah, because she lifted all that dead weight, right? Yes, exactly. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't believe that she could have superhuman strength to throw him up into the air onto the sofa. But (laughs) she clearly must be stronger than I am because there's no way... That I could be able to do that. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I, I don't want to, yeah. but I'm just saying, like, I don't know how she even physically did it. Yeah, it's a good question. Now, I would be suspicious that she had help doing it. Like, maybe the boyfriend had helped. Except, neighbor Vicky shows up again because, remember, she saw Cheyenne loading some bins onto the SUV. Oh, right, you're right. And it turns out that those bins were her father and her daughter. That she actually dragged up into her father's Suburban so that she could drive them the short half-mile drive to her father's landlord's property next door where she planned to store them. Damn. Yeah, so by all accounts, Vicky appears to have seen her moving the bodies on her own. Yikes. Which means it's unlikely that her boyfriend was helping her. Well, that's good for him. Yeah, now I don't know how she got that bin up onto the SUV. I have some theories that maybe, you know, some big bins have like wheels on them maybe this one had wheels that could be that or could maybe help. she like lifted one edge and then like leveraged it up or something right yeah that could do it. yeah i just i really want to know that and it's not anywhere in any of the reports that i saw okay so she has these bodies in the suv and she takes them to the landlord's storage shed that's behind her home which was the next door neighbor the landlord had given a key to, I'm assuming Mark, but Cheyenne had this key. She had access to it. And so she knows this locked storage shed will be a great place to hide the bodies because once she puts them inside, she can lock it and she's the only one who will have this key. Right. You're probably wondering, well, where's the landlord? Well, the landlord was out of town at the time and she would be gone for a while. So Cheyenne thought she'd be none the wiser and she was actually hoping that the maggots would eat Mark and Meredith before the landlord got back. Oh, my God. That was her plan, people. That's a terrible plan. It's just, it's fucked up. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I don't even know how you get to that. I, I don't either, man. That's messed up. Okay, so apparently she put her daughter's bin in the shed first and then she dragged her father's bin on top of it. Then after she had stacked the bins, she changed out of her bloody clothes and stole an outfit from her father. She stuffed her bloody clothes, bloody gloves, the murder knife, and the shell casings from the gun into a Walmart bag. Then she hid the Walmart bag full of evidence. Later, police alleged that she got her cover-up ideas from an episode of Criminal Minds, though I'm not sure which one. Yeah, this story seems outlandish even for a TV show. Definitely. During her confession, Cheyenne also told police that she was afraid of her daughter and didn't want to spend time alone with her, and claimed that she had to hide kitchen knives from the six-year-old. But, as we've all learned, someone needed to hide kitchen knives from Cheyenne. Clearly. Yeah, because Meredith didn't stab anyone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so... Boo. Boo. Boo at Cheyenne. Authorities charged Cheyenne with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of tampering with physical evidence. They also decided to seek the death penalty. I feel like this was partially because of a child being brutally murdered... I could see that. I mean, people are, I mean, all murders are evil, but like she murdered her child. And I really think this reminds a lot of people of the Casey Anthony case too, because I mean, I thought of it over and over and over again as I was reading this, because obviously Casey Anthony was, was found, I guess, innocent. She was acquitted of her daughter's murder, but that also took place in Florida. And we had a disappearing girl. We had a mom who didn't want to be a mom necessarily. And then she also blamed her dad. That makes sense. I could see the parallels. Yeah, although this is like way more violent. Yeah. Assuming. Yeah. We don't really know for sure though. I mean, it is because she killed the dad, so. Yeah. At trial, prosecutors argued that Cheyenne killed her father and her daughter because they were getting in the way of her relationship with her boyfriend, Cody, whom she had been dating for several months. Apparently, this relationship was more important than two lives. On the other hand... The defense team argued that Cody was the real murderer, and they say she only confessed because she was afraid of him. Really? Yes, that was their their plan. That does not seem like a good plan. What evidence do they have to back that up? Exactly. That is a question that I have, because first of all, why would Cody kill them? Like, he expressed a desire to leave the relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's not someone who's saying... I'm going to commit murder for you. Right, exactly. I mean, really, if someone's willing to break up with you that easily, you probably should just let them go. They're not the one for you. Yeah. You should 100% not kill for them. Definitely don't do that. Yeah, there's literally no evidence that he had anything to do with it. It's not even his gun or his knife. Nobody saw him over there during the time frame. And she was witnessed removing the bodies. Exactly. Yeah, and she also told that really crazy story. And I feel like if two people had worked on that story together... It would have been a better story. I would hope so. I don't have evidence of that, but I feel like it would have been a better story. I would just hope so. Yeah. I I also feel like if the boyfriend had been there, especially if he had done it, then, you know, you would want to include him in the story to explain evidence if nothing else. So that could be really helpful to explain how bodies were flipped on the couches and stuff. Right? How she got the upper hand is maybe he ran in and defended her. And that's why his fingerprints were there, which they were not recorded as being there. Right. And I think that's why she didn't include him. Yeah, which, I mean, makes sense, right? Yeah. Okay, so he gets kind of a bad rap here, but I'm not saying he was a great dude. I don't know. Maybe he's a good dude. Maybe he's a bad dude. I have no evidence either way. I just don't, there's literally no reports of any evidence that indicates that he participated in the crime. 
Right. Also at her trial, Cheyenne stared at the floor the entire time, never lifting her head up. And while her lawyers argued her case, she wrote and drew on a notepad. Observers say that she showed no emotions and she didn't testify in her own defense. So the jury didn't hear her side of the story in her own words. Probably because her story was pretty stupid, though. Yeah, her, her the story in her own words was, was most likely going to be terrible. Definitely. Also, I think they asked them to, to write and draw during the trial because it happens so often, especially when, as we will see later, they're going to try to bring her mental health issues into the trial as well. And I think that sometimes is why they ask their people, like their defendants, like, I think they tell them to do that, to draw and write and stuff. Hmm. Like, it makes them seem like they're more innocent somehow. It does not. Like, yeah. I think there's, like, a theory that makes you seem like you're not quite with it. Like, oh, I'm on trial for murder, but I've drawn a cloud. Right. But I don't think that actually works very well on juries. It wouldn't work well on me. Yeah, I mean, if it were an actual child, you know, if, like, if an 11-year-old was over there drawing a picture of, like, Spongebob, then maybe I would be like, oh, this is a child. Right. They like Spongebob. But if a mom who murdered her her father and her daughter is drawing pictures of something, I'm wondering why the fuck aren't you paying attention? Exactly. Because that's weird. That it is. Okay, and again, there's a lot of debate over her mental issues, which we will get to in a second. And at first I felt more sorry for her, but I feel like I don't really feel sorry for her. No. At all. At the end of the trial, a jury of nine women and three men convicted Cheyenne of the charges in July 2019. So this is like four years after the crime. It was actually four years to the day after the crime is when she gets convicted. Wow. Yeah. When the judge announced the guilty verdicts, Cheyenne whispered no, and her lawyer comforted her as she shed a few tears. At the sentencing trial, family members asked for life in prison rather than a death sentence. I think the main reason, according to reports, is that the family didn't want to have to keep going back to appeals and stuff and have to go through the trial over and over and over again. Right. They just wanted it done. And I also think that it was harder for them to ask for the death penalty because she was still family to them. And even though they didn't support her, really, they also didn't want her to die. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. But the prosecutor's office was 100% going for the death penalty. They were not at all worried about any other kind of thing. They were like, I mean, if they could have just like done it right then, it seems like <laughs> they would have done. They it. were geared up. Yeah. Yeah. So at this uh, sentencing hearing, her defense team argued that she had actually suffered brain damage in childhood because of that extreme neglect and deprivation. And she also had had that physical and sexual abuse that had negatively impacted her as well. And they brought in a psychiatrist who testified that her brain damage was actually causing uncontrollable rage, which ultimately made her commit murder. Now, initially, that sounded kind of bullshitty to me, not to lie. I mean, obviously, mental health issues are, are very real and very serious, and brain damage is extremely serious. But I was like, uncontrollable homicidal rage? I mean, really. Yeah, I don't know about that. But he did back up his assessment with brain scans that he said showed abnormalities in Cheyenne's brain that can signify something called ictal rage. And I looked this up, and this type of rage occurs when you have a focal seizure that causes electrical activity in your brain, and this triggers extreme aggression. 
Now, they had experts that countered the psychiatrist who noted that this had never been diagnosed in her before and there were never any signs that she'd had anything like a focal seizure. Yeah. But this was his theory. That's very interesting. Yeah. And so at this point, there was like a part of me that sort of felt sorry for her because she also had like major depression and had been diagnosed as bipolar. And for a moment, I was like, oh, wow, this lady has brain damage. That's really significant. But remember, her IQ tested normal and she'd been able to hold down all these like really normal jobs. And the prosecutor's office argued that it's clear that she had operated as like a regularly functioning person for quite a while before the murders occurred. And she had been meticulously cleaning up the crime scene and had even gone so far as to send text messages from her father's phone, which indicates that she was able to plan out a sophisticated murder. That's true. Now, clearly her story was stupid, but... The other parts of it, the cover-up was partially done well. Yeah. Like, the weeks, aside from, like, her her mess-ups during the cleanup, the weeks in between where she lied to everyone, she got away with that for, like, almost two whole weeks yeah. of lies that people took for a long time to question. Yeah, absolutely. If she really had a severe impairment, I don't know that she would have made it that far. That's a good point. However, I do agree with the defense team that it's a definitely compelling reason for life in prison and not for the death penalty. Yeah, I could see that. I think that anytime someone has any kind of mental issue, the death penalty is just icky. Yeah. To be fair, I also think that death penalty is just icky. Yeah. But anyway, I do think that was significant. Now, for some reason, the de- defense team also decided to go uh, have a backup plan, I guess, in case they were still thinking about the death penalty. And would you like to guess what this backup plan was going to be? I'm very interested to find out. Okay. So the defense team legit told the story of Cain and Abel from the Bible. Really? Yes. Because Cain, remember, he kills Abel. And when God calls him out on it, he's like, just kill me now because living with the burden of my guilt would be worse. And so God makes him live with the burden of his guilt And then he has to be cast out, you know, and then he goes and he eventually marries and has kids and like reforms his life, but never forgets Abel. And so their point is that living with the burden of her crime would be worse than killing her and that she might do some good if she gets to live. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Now, I feel like they thought they were being clever, like, oh, we're going to get him on this one. Um, no, no people. No. Yeah. No, you were great with the first one. The the mental health defense, excellent choice. This this thing, I don't think I don't think that works. Yeah, has that ever worked? I don't believe so. I feel like maybe don't try to be like super clever. Like if you think, "Oh my god, this is so clever." Probably don't do it. Yeah, clever is not always a good is not always yeah, a good thing. I don't I think they missed the pot here. I feel like this might have been why the jury was really not sure what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Which we will see. So during this sentencing hearing, they go into deliberations and the trial takes another strange turn because a juror named Carol Lee Ghostline emailed the judge and told them that a juror named Juanita Bell felt intimidated by another juror who was a man called Scott Romanoff. Now, Romanoff hears about this email and is like, "Uh uh-uh, I have not intimidated anyone. So he sends his own email saying, no, I do not do this. And he wants like a full-on hearing 
to prove that he is not doing this. Okay. Okay, so the judge is like, "Uh uh-oh. And the defense attorneys are just having the best day of their lives. Yeah, they're like mistrial. Yes, Central, they are yeah. just, they've got fireworks going on, metaphorically. They're right. super happy. So they're like, we need to interview these jurors. There's been misconduct, you know, crime's bad. We <laughs> need to do this again. The whole, whole nine yards. Yeah. So the judge at this point is like, no, <laughs> we are not doing it like that. I'm going to find out what happened and then I'll tell you all what we're going to do moving forward. So the judge looks into it and determines that it's normal jury deliberations. Essentially, they all had heated opinions. And this just kind of boiled over to where people are accusing each other of feeling intimidated. Right. Okay. And the judge also decides that it's probably not going to impact the outcome of the trial. So they just continue deliberating. Okay. After this sentencing trial, the jury eventually recommended a death sentence in Meredith's murder. It has to be unanimous to be a death sentence. And in Meredith's murder, they did reach an unanimous decision that she deserved death. In the murder of Mark, 10 people voted for the death penalty, two voted for life in prison. So she got a recommendation for life in prison for that murder. Okay, so at this point, it seems like she has the death penalty, right? Yeah. Okay, that's not how this works, though. The judge actually makes the final decision. Now, he can decide to go with the jury's recommendation on the death penalty, or he can just give her life in prison for both. But he can't give her the death penalty for the life in prison case because he can't go against the jury if they don't vote for that. But he can give her a lesser sentence. Like, that's how it works. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, the judge decides that he's going to take some time to think about this because if... Cheyenne received the death penalty, she would actually be the first woman in Polk County, Florida to be sentenced to death ever. Wow. Yeah. Now, ultimately, weighing all the evidence, the judge eventually sentenced her to life in prison for each murder because of those mental health issues and the possible brain damage. According to the ledger, Judge Jalal Harb explained his decisions by saying, quote, The first-degree murder was committed while Cheyenne Nicole Jesse was under the influence of extreme mental or emotional disturbance. The circumstances of the capacity of Cheyenne Nicole Jesse to appreciate the criminality of her conduct or to conform her conduct to the requirements of the law was substantially impaired, unquote. And I have to say, I agree with the judge here. Yeah, I do too. I mean, death is... Death seems harsh here. I mean, like, obviously this is a heinous Mm -hmm. crime, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean she's got life in prison and it's like Florida life in prison. So It's not going to be a walk in the park. No. I mean, I'm no I don't know if I necessarily support people going to prison forever without parole, but I do support people who do heinous crimes getting extremely long sentences and having the option to spend life in prison. Yeah. I really think that everything should be based on individual cases when possible. In this case, I don't know that it makes sense for her to necessarily be out. And I don't think she will be. But at the same time, maybe having an option would still be good. I could see that. But at the same time, I don't agree with putting her to death for obvious reasons. Yeah. And I think anytime the family's not in favor of it, I really think that their opinion should be weighed too. Because they're the ones, especially since Cheyenne's a part of their family, they're the ones who are being impacted the most by this crime. I mean, aside from the victims, obviously, who were, were murdered. Yeah. But I do think that their opinion should have weight, a much heavier weight than the opinions of people who aren't involved in the case. So I think it's good that she didn't get the death penalty. I agree. 
But I was incredibly disturbed by this. I, I apparently, I keep accidentally picking these cases with kids in them. And I think it's because I'm, I'm started out on one case that had a kid in it. And then I feel like I'm just getting a lot of like similar cases in the search results. And then I'm, I'm saving them for later. But then I go to start researching the next case. And I just kind of go to the one at the top that I was just looking at. And I'm like, oh, this one looks good. Let me just go with it. And that's another one with kids. Yeah, and then I don't have time to change my mind. Like, I'm already in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, once I've, like, opened up pages, I'm already, I'm making progress, people. Yeah, it's committed. Yeah, so hopefully next week we'll try not to have a kid in it. <laughs> I'll make that my goal for next week. I think that was my goal for this time, though. So we'll see if it happens. But this case is really compelling. I really think it's similar to the Casey Anthony case for me. I hope that you got something out of this case. If nothing else, a bunch of what the fucks. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. So if you would like to support the show, we have a Patreon and a Buy Me a Coffee. Both of them are at backslash badaxpod. And on Patreon, we do have some juicy bonus episodes. We have some exclusives over there that we are constantly adding to. Uh, And Buy Me a Coffee, we will also offer you some lovely juicy bits that you can enjoy special if you go over there and visit us and maybe support us in our show. Uh, We also have a Gmail. So if you would like to send back feedback or just interesting thoughts or suggestions or maybe an angry message that you would like to deliver to us, we have a Gmail at badaxpod at gmail.com. We also have a website at badaxpod.com and you can connect with us on social media we are on all the social medias, but Instagram is basically our home spot. That is my favorite of all the social medias. I go there all the time and post things. All of our social media handles are Pod. So essentially, if you type that into the internet, you should be able to find us. Absolutely. Yes, and we would love to hear from you. We are super excited to meet our friend fans. We have connected with a couple so far, which is super exciting. And yeah, that could be you. That could be you. Yeah, and you can tell us what you think about the case, too. Yes, please do. Exactly. All right, people. Thank you for listening. Have an awesome weekend. And we will see you super duper soon with a new story and even some updates. Yay. Bye-bye. Bye.